Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Casey Marganow with Casey Marganow Fine Homes in Vienna, Virginia. Last year, he closed 69 transactions with a total sales volume of $74 million. His average sales price was $1.1 million, of which 24% were buyers and 76% were sellers. He has an eight-member team, three sales agents, one closing coordinator, one sales coordinator, one marketing coordinator, one field coordinator, and one team leader. Casey Marganow is the team leader of the Casey Marganow Fine Homes team. He's been an agent for 27 years and sold 2,830 homes worth $2.7 billion in his career, making Casey a multi-billion dollar agent. He was ranked the number one agent worldwide for REMAX five years in a row. In this call, Casey talks about getting a quick start in real estate and becoming the number one agent in his association by his second full year in the business. Why it's helpful to have a sales background. Selling through storytelling. How he started selling luxury homes. Why he calls million-dollar homes forever homes. Which agents can easily transition into the luxury market? You may be surprised. How to market luxury homes and find a buyer. What he claims is the single biggest thing I've done in my career that has had success. The radical change he sees coming in the market in the next five years that will dramatically change the real estate landscape and how you can survive and even thrive. His simple annual marketing plan to pass clients in sphere of influence. How green and red cherries changed his approach to marketing. Why internet marketing dynamics and an exit plan led him to go independent. The three key administrative positions on his team. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Casey. I am glad to be here. Hey, Casey, it's great to have you here. Casey, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I was in the automobile business. I was in that industry for eight years. I was uh, a general manager for a dealership when I left. And when I got into the business, the guy that was the number one salesperson in the store that I started in had been a real estate agent. And when I got started selling, I kind of took over the number one spot. And when you knock off the, the big boy in the room, Lots of times that person winds up quitting, and he got into real estate, back into real estate. 
and um, actually sold me my first home. Um, so it wasn't that adversarial of a relationship, but um, he had told me that I should get into real estate. And, uh, you know, for eight years, I stayed in the business. And um, what happened was over a period of time that kept in the back of my mind as something that would be an interesting thing to do. And when I realized that um, I wasn't going to become a dealer, I wasn't, it was too difficult to be a, a small dealer in the automobile business, um, I decided to get into real estate. When you got into real estate that first year, did you have a fast start or a slow start? Well, I guess that depends. I made about $65,000 that first year. Um, that was from May to the end of the year. So I guess that would be a pretty, pretty much a fast start in most businesses. You're talking about 1989. But to me, I, w I took a step backwards because I had, I, I had been making, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year at that time. So um, it took me to my second full year in the business to overcome my income that I was making prior to being in the real estate business. That had to be a, a bit of a struggle. Did you have regrets about transitioning into real estate that first year and a half? Nope. I understand when I went from sales to management, I took a step backwards and then in the long run was able to increase. I knew I, my first year, my first day in the real estate business, I knew that I was going to do well. I looked at the business and looked for opportunities in the business. And, I, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something in real estate, but I didn't, when I started getting into it, I realized what a vast business it was. And I didn't know if I wanted to do commercial, I wanted to do industrial, I wanted to do land, I wanted to do residential. And what I realized, I looked at the competition in, um, in selling residential, and I said, hmm, if, if these people can do that well with no real sales background, and one day I was out buying, I actually sold a, the, the first house I bought, I bought for 134000 Three years later, I sold it for 350000 And so that made me think, well, wow, wow, this is a good business. So when I went to go buy a house, I was looking to buy about a $500,000 house in the late 80s. The, the real estate agents that, that were showing me property, they weren't that good as salespeople. I mean, from a, they either came on real strong or they didn't come on at all. So what I thought was, okay, I could do this. And then when I finally got into the real estate business, I, um, I basically took that knowledge and that, those experiences and decided I would work you know, harder than everybody else, and I knew that I would do well. So when I first got in, I started interviewing companies to work for because you don't, it's not like when you're brand new, you, you won't get hired by anybody. Um, 
And so I interviewed a bunch of different companies and looked at a bunch of different companies, and I found Remax, and um, I liked their their 100% concept because I knew it was due well. I didn't mind paying a bill. I had money. So I joined Remax to start, um, which was very unusual. My first transaction as a real estate agent, my first couple of transactions were as a buyer agent. That was in 1989 um, when buyer agency really wasn't that big of a thing going on. So um, I started off with a fast start of having transactions going on, um, but I, the only thing I worked at that time was my sphere of influence because I had a lot of them and I had a lot of clients being in the automobile business, you know, where you're selling 30 or 40 cars a month compared to the real estate business where you, you sell that in a year. So I had a lot of contacts and so I just worked, wound up working that. How long have you been in the business? May of 1989 was when I first got my license, so it's 27 years. How many homes did you sell last year? Last year was 69 homes, and that's about $74 million in volume. How many homes did you sell in your best year, and what year was it? That's 2004. That was 165 houses, and that was... Um, around $140-$150 million worth of real estate. We averaged about 860 per transaction, so whatever that worked out to then. Do you know how many homes you've sold in your career? It's uh, 2830. Do you know what that sales volume is? $2.7 billion. Oh my goodness! So, so you're a, a billion dollar agent. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm written about in a couple of books on billion dollar real estate agents. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, Casey, you mentioned earlier that one of the advantages you have when you got in the real estate business was that you had a background in sales. You considered yourself a salesperson and some of the folks you saw doing well in the real estate business did not have a, a sales background or weren't very good at sales. So for someone who's listening, how would they get good at sales? Well, the problem with the real estate business is you get into a business where your sales cycle is, you know, um, the average real estate agent, they might sell, you know, 10 houses a year, I mean, or less. Um, so you're talking about um, it's very difficult to go through a sales cycle. So having sales experience, I think, is imperative to be a, a good real estate agent. Um, now, obviously, you can be good without having sales experience, um, but I think that that's a, a great background before you get into this business. Um, and, you know, you can gain experience through, of course, reading books and, you know, and watching, going to seminars and things like that. But reality is that you learn sales by doing sales. 
and um, learning a system like I did in the automobile business where you're taking, you know, dealing with sales transactions, multiple transactions in a day is a good, you know, understanding of how people work. I mean, I've, I deal with top athletes, top CEOs, politicians. I mean, everybody, because I'm outside of Washington, D.C., in the affluent areas here. And when I'm dealing with a CEO of a company, they can break down and can't make a decision on trying to negotiate $20,000 on a $3 million deal and it's the craziest thing when they're doing multi-billion dollar transactions every single day, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> real estate's an emotional decision. It's your home, you know. How do you help one of these folks who it gets stuck in the emotional side? How do you get them to get over that? What's one of your techniques or, or strategies? Well, that's like um, asking uh, a pro football player how he how he does how he does his job. I mean, every every situation <laughs> is is um, quite different. Um, the you know, I'm thinking of of one in particular, uh, and basically, uh, I had this person that you know didn't want to spend as much as he should and um you know didn't look i showed him a deal and basically made him buy it and about a, for a year after he bought that property he was kind of mad at me but um just because he wanted to spend less money but over time what he realized was I, what I did was I showed him the right way to go, and the property he bought, he made a million dollars on since he bought it about, um, I guess it's now six or seven years, and um, and the property he wanted that he didn't get is worth exactly the same, and he would have had to overpay for it, exactly what we offered, but they didn't take it. So, um, you know, it was the right decision for him, and he now he's my best friend, and 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 uh, yeah, and, and and he sings my praises. So I like to make, you know, what they call raving fans. I like to try to get people into a situation where they talk about me and talk about what I did for them all the time. That is a great story, and I assume that when you now run into another client who is having a problem with the price or two different property selections, and you're recommending one and they're going another direction, I assume you bring up this story with those folks to help them get over the hump. I have lots of stories, but yes. <laughs> I do. Is that part of your selling style, is that you use stories and examples for people? Of course. That that's part of selling is selling a story, you know, keeping the the transaction on track. And because I have lots of experiences, I can draw from those experiences to help people make the right decision, but also have the right expectations. I mean, yesterday I wrote a contract on a, a piece of property. And, well, excuse me, yesterday I got the answer back. Um, 
Friday, I wrote a, pro- a contract on a piece of property, and it had just come on the market, and we came in and wrote a contract for full price, and we got, um, uh, we got uh, I don't know how to say this, we got manipulated by the listing agent, <laughs> and she used our contract to get another contract. I'm not sure if it's her own or some, you know, another transaction. And she didn't even give us a chance to buy the property. They wound up taking a contract with somebody else. But I had, I had given these people expectations that that could happen as one of the scenarios that could happen in this transaction. And so when it did happen, they weren't too concerned about it because when those things happen, they happen and and I find them something better also. And today, right before I got on the call with you, I was looking for um, another piece of property for them. And I think I found something maybe even better. So, you know, that's how it kind of works. Great example. And I'm sure that most of us on the call have experienced that situation where something like that happens. Let's back up for a minute. Casey, could you tell us where you're at? Where is Vienna, Virginia? Well, my office is in what's called Tyson's Corners. Tyson's Corner is a close-in suburb of Washington, D.C. My market area is, number one, McLean, number two, Great Falls, number three, Vienna, and number four, um, Oakton. And those, those four locations are the highest pricing for housing in the Washington metro area in Virginia. Um, and, and that's why, and, and what I sell is at now, at this time of my career, are million-dollar-plus houses in pretty much those four market areas. Doesn't mean that I won't go out of those areas, but those are my focus for marketing purposes. Could you describe your current real estate market? Our prices are flat. They've been flat since about 2012. You know, we hit bottom in 08, 09, and 10, and then kind of worked our way up, and we've been pretty much flat since then. But some areas... Some areas have increased in value and some have not. In what I deal in mostly is new and newer homes, um, what people would have called their forever home, you know, the, their last home that they buy. I deal in that. Um, so I deal with people that are in usually not the first-time home buyers. <laughs> um, usually they're moving up or a lot of my clients are actually downsizing now, and um, I'm selling their big homes. And my main business is, like I said, million-dollar-plus houses, and I do that because I can only do so much. And so by raising the price range, um, I, I wind up um, making transactions that make more sense. So, and I work with a lot of builders selling their homes. Builders are 
they know what a good real estate agent is compared to um, others. They they want good marketing, and they appreciate what I do. And I can have one client and wind up selling, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 homes with that per- same person over periods of time. And a lot of my homes mostly go from two to to five million, but anything over a million is good business for me. I was going to ask if you have a niche or a specialization. It sounds like your niche is luxury homes, what you call forever homes. That's correct. Like right now, I have 65 homes for sale. And to date, we've sold 47. I try to look at the amount of income. My goal this year is to do 2.5 million in income. We were talking right before we got on the call, and, and you had mentioned you've, you've had a long career now, and now you're no longer focused on units and sales volume, but the net income that, that comes to you, the, the money that you take home. When did the transition happen, and, and why did that happen? Well, I've always looked at income versus volume to some degree. In our business, the business is volume. So when I started off, I looked at volume because that's how our industry looks at our business. And I was more interested in being a top agent. And I, you know, I, I became the top agent in Northern Virginia's board my second full year in the business. So everything that was being done that way was on volume. So volume was important in the early part of my career because I liked having those accolades coming back from other people saying, wow, you did a good job. That's one of the reasons why I was with Remax for 25 years. I had a support network of you know, 115,000 real estate agents across the country and built relationships and had conventions and you know that, that type of thing. Also, my name locally wasn't as big, and so I needed that national or international name recognition to get listings and get properties. That's an interesting point. You have recently, just within the last few years, gone independent. Why did you make that decision after spending so much time with Remax? It was a hard decision. I liked Remax very much, but I kind of outgrew them. And I probably should have done it earlier, but just like getting out of the automobile business going into real estate, you know, you have those golden handcuffs. I also, it's hard to make a change. A lot of different brokerage houses had been over many, many years, had tried to get me to leave Remax and go with them. But I liked the Remax franchise. I liked the program. I liked how it worked. And one of the advantages very early on by being with Remax was that you advertised yourself and you got the phone calls. With traditional brokerage companies, they used to come in, it used to be people would call, um, but the calls would come into a central desk and whoever's doing desk duty got the calls uh, on whatever the listing was. And 
I realized very early on that if you don't get the call on your listing, you're not going to get the business. And the people that are calling, they want someone that knows more information about it. And it was it was easy for me to compete with people that were getting the phone call doing desk duty and they didn't know anything about the property. So in that, today, the internet is how people look for homes. And on the internet, and this is one of the reasons why I changed to Casey Margaret Now Fine Homes, was because on the internet, I was being named as Remax. And so when people would grab your inventory and put it on their website or, you know, grab the inventory and put it on Long and Foster or Coldwell Banker or Century 21 or Remax, they, it would just say that it was Remax's listing and they didn't know who the listing agent was. And what I found is that consumers, especially at my price range, want to talk to the listing agent and they're savvy enough to understand that that's the person to talk to about the property when they're in that gathering of information stage. And so by putting my company in my name, I wind up having my name on every single property that I have, even if somebody puts it on their own website because they have to put it on. Also, I wanted to set up my exit strategy out of the business put something together that I can sell. I was curious why you used your own name in the company name, and now that makes complete sense because it's going out there on the the redistribution out along the internet, and your name will continue to show up. However, the last statement that you made kind of threw me because you said you're you're looking for an exit strategy, and by using your own personal name, it may be make it difficult for the next person coming in. How do you how do you put those two together? My name locally in my own market area is bigger than Remax's. It's bigger than, you know, most different, you know, company names. So by having that, I can transition somebody into, I mean, Long and Foster is two people's names. Um, Weikert is a person's name. So I don't think it's that strange and what I'm ultimately going to do, and I'm not ready to go, you know, out tomorrow, but um, I've still got a kid in middle school. But the plan is to ultimately sell my company to the people that work for me. And so it will be an easy transition. And I already have started a little bit of that in the way that my brokerage business works. So you're going to bring people in to the inside. They'll learn your business from the inside. They'll take over from the inside. Will you sell it in installment over time and create an income stream? Or is your goal to get a large lump sum at the end? How do you plan on selling at the end? What is the selling process of the business going to look like? Probably on a monthly installment. That's probably how I'll go. But after so many years in business, I'm always open for whatever comes along. So um, I'm not fixed to basically, you know, in this business, you have to be fluid. And, and, I mean, 
I actually have ideas on where this business is going, and I think that uh, a lot of these things are going to, you know, the business is going to change a lot over the um, next five years. I don't think it's going to be exactly the same that it is right now. And so part of my strategy for what doing my own business is that it also, I, I find that the boutique kind of business for, the, there's always people that want to have good service and will pay for quality service. That's why people will go and buy a, a, a Jaguar or a Range Rover or a, a Mercedes because they want, they'll, they'll pay that extra money because they get good service and good quality product. And so by having the kind of boutique kind of real estate company, I can control my message, I can control the quality of service that comes out of my shop. When I was with Remax, I can't control what people think about Remax because everybody's working their own way and everybody could have their own thought process of how to do business and it wasn't the same continuity through all the different you know, people that you're dealing with. I assume that you would consider yourself a luxury agent. To you, what is a luxury home? How do you define a luxury home in your market? To me, it's a million dollars plus. That's it. That's the criteria that I look at. And then, and then of course, usually they're new or newer because um, at least if they're older houses, they've been renovated or updated because most of the time at a million dollars plus people expect certain features in the home you made a conscious decision to work in the upper end of the market and it sounds like it was motivated by having the higher sales volume initially and then the higher net income is that correct it's definitely higher net income but you also have to think of it like this at five hundred thousand dollars you're competing with the Redfins of the world and the discount brokerages and the, all the little brands because those people don't care who they're working with as much. And the higher the price you get, the more people appreciate quality service. So it also was a natural progression for me to you know, in the real estate business, one of the things that I learned very early on was if you want to give yourself a raise, you just raise your price range. And so from the very beginning, I started off with the first year saying, okay, I'll take anything that comes my way. And then the second year, I'm dropping off the, the lower, you know, the lower quality business and the, and the business that takes more time. So at the very beginning, I did everything. Then I realized, okay, I don't want to do industrial. I don't want to do commercial. I don't want to do these types of things because they wound up taking my focus off of my main core business. And then I wound up getting involved with the banks because that was 19... 
91, and we were talking about the RTC days. And so I wound up becoming a real estate agent for the banks, and that perpetuated my business forward. And then, you know, and then I wound up going through the 90s, where every year I would lower the bottom line, raise the top line. But in the 90s, the high end of the market wasn't selling. And so if, if you had something over 800000 it would sit on the market for a long period of time. And so I worked on the lower prices, but I kept my hands on the, the expensive houses as well. And then I just kept moving up and narrowing the distance where at, at early stages, if I had to drive a half an hour to get a listing, I don't care. Now, I don't want to, I don't want, I want them more in my core business area. And so it was in every stage of your business, you keep changing and adapting as you get better and as you get more business and um, you don't have to do the other stuff, you know, what you don't want to do. Going back to the beginning, you mentioned that initially you worked your sphere of influence coming out of the auto industry. In the auto industry, did you sell high-end luxury cars? Yeah. I started off doing Hondas and, and then um, Acura than BMW, you know, so it, yeah, I did. I guess I did high, the higher end cars. So the, the people that were buying these high end luxury cars were a, a great database, a great sphere to purchase high end homes. Yeah. Well, when I was in the car business, there wasn't such thing as a database. <laughs> we had, <laughs> we had tickler files and, and, um, cards set up on every person. And so when I got into the, uh, <laughs> when I got into real estate, um, I had a computer, but computers were not the same as they are now. And so I had that information and, and I, I started going through those things and I just let people know that, Hey, this is what, what my new business was. And, you know, and that I worked it all the way through to now. You also mentioned that you've expanded and shrunk your, your range of prices that you would work with. A question would be when you were constricting your price range, moving it up and you stopped working so much with the uh, lower end prices. How did you turn down the referral business that would come in at the lower end? You don't. You, you, you focus on getting the, and advertising and marketing what you want, but you don't, you, you don't turn down business. I mean, right now, I just listed on Thursday a house that's $600,000. I sold it over the weekend. Um, you know, they, they sell very quickly, but it was a referral business. And um, I take, of course, I take that business, but I don't market for that business. So when you look at my ads, and when you look at an ad, a print advertising of me in Luxury Homes Magazine or the back of the Sun Gazette or, um, you know, in, in, I, I have a philosophy of marketing 
on my print advertising on a local level, on a regional level, on a national level, and an international level. But when you look at all of those ads, every one, all they have on there is the higher-end houses. And then what happens is, you know, print advertising doesn't work the way it used to work. Um, I mean, at the beginning of my career, I was spending six or eight thousand dollars a month on classified ads. Now I spend zero on classified ads, but I still do print advertising in um, local newspapers, and I still do print advertising in local um, and regional magazines and international magazines. But what it's designed to do is more name recognition. It's also sellers look at advertising and they look at it and they say, okay, this person sells a lot of houses like mine and I I should give them a call. And then the other thing is, is people don't call on an ad in the magazine. What they do is they look at the magazine find things that are of interest to them and then look them up on the internet. So your internet presence has to be where you're driving the traffic to. I'm sure a lot of people listening have the question why you're doing so much print advertising. And it sounds like you mentioned that you're you're doing a lot of it to position you as the luxury agent in your market as opposed to looking for these buyer leads, because you mentioned they're, they're actually coming back in through the internet. Is that correct? That's correct. What I've done is I've created myself to be almost a local celebrity. I mean, not that you're a celebrity for selling houses, but when I go into the, the coffee shop or, you know, the 7-Eleven or, uh, or I'm just at my kid's lacrosse game, you know, people come up to me and say, oh, you're Casey Margaret now, aren't you? I see you're advertising all over the place, and you do a great job. And what I want is the classy, nice advertising, and what happens is people recognize me, and that leads to the conversation of housing. And in today's world, where we have already you know, through, and we've kind of gotten into marketing stuff, but uh, we, you know, in today's world, we've already ruined your mailbox. Um, you know, people grab their mail out, they sort it over the trash can and throw all the, the, the junk mail away. And, you know, every, we've ruined your email box because I have right now uh, over a hundred emails just and I've already cleaned it up once today, you know, and I've got a, a hundred new ones. So you're being bombarded with stuff, and the internet has allowed us to be in a place where we can pick and choose what we want to look at. So people don't like to be sold, but people love to buy and they love to get expert advice. So what happens is I create that image that people can just talk to me and they feel that they know me. I, mean, I get people that think they know me and I've never met them before in my life. <laughs> you know? And I, I do that with precise advertising that's in the places that people are looking for, for 
the, the type of property that I'm selling. And then you have to have, in today's business, you have to have a good internet presence. And I understand that people, when they go to look for a house that they want, they're looking for the house that fits their needs, not a real estate agent. And so I make sure that on every one of my houses, I do a YouTube video. I've been doing this since 2006. I remember in 2008 going to the Remax convention and everybody was talking about how you have to do you know, these things. And still to date, people don't do them. And it's the single biggest thing I've done in my career that has had success because I walk through every single house, I demonstrate the house to the camera, it's like I'm walking you through on a showing, but I explain the house in detail. I explain the molding, I explain the woods, I explain the, the different features. Uh, I'll explain if this room can be changed into other things that you might use it for, you know, playrooms or libraries or whatever they, they might be. I talk about the inner workings of the house, how it's wired and, and things like that. And I find that people watch them. And when I started them, YouTube only allowed you to do three-minute videos. And over time, with the houses that I have, some of these videos are 20 minutes, 30 minutes. We've even had one that was 45 minutes. And we don't lose viewers. I mean, we don't lose them to where they turn them off because we're not going for the whole, you know, cute kitty type of thing where, you know, a million people are looking at it. We're only looking for five to 800 people to take a look at them and um, watch them all the way through. Um, and so it doesn't matter how many hits I get on them. I get, you know, five to 800 views where people will watch the whole video sometimes multiple times and and then they know the house and what I get is I get these people that are coming to look at the house and I meet them there and they and I start to talk about different things about the house and they go yeah we already know we already watched your video and now it's gotten to a point that everybody has if they're looking at the house almost every single person that I meet there and show the house to, they've already seen the video. A lot of times they'll bring their real estate agent, so I won't meet them. But in those cases, they know more about the property than even their real estate agent does. And when you sell the features of something, then it creates value, and then it gets them to a point where they can make a decision easier. So, in essence, what you're doing is truly a first showing on the Internet. Yeah, absolutely. And how, how would you like it if you can get 500 people to look at your house? <laughs> that sounds like something you say in a listing presentation. It is. On the video itself, do you mention price? Usually price range. I try not to be specific because, you know... Every once in a while, we have to change a price. <laughs> sure. So prices, 
a range. How about the security of the house? I'm sure people would be thinking about that. Are sellers concerned about the security of the house or showing certain items that are in the house, especially a, a luxury home? Not really. I mean, what are, you, what are you doing in your pictures? I mean, you're talking about the house, not their personal belongings, and a, a photograph would have them in there also. And the way that these things are set up, it's, um, you know, most of these homes are appointment only, and most of them have sophisticated security systems on them with video monitoring and everything else. So that's not a really big issue, but it has been every once in a while. These can be really long. How's the process itself work? It's you and one other person filming you, or are you filming it and you're you're walking through the house and talking in the video? No, I have somebody that's filming filming it, a professional that we've hired, and they film it and I talk through it. Um, again, I'm try- trying to brand me as an expert, okay? I mean, the videos go through a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons for them. One of the reasons is to show people what you know about a house. So you're branding yourself through the video as well. So I'm showing the property. Some real estate agents have thought that it was, um, yeah, I had a big head about it and, and, you know, I did it for my own ego, but it's not. It's all about business. It's just like, you know, we had talked earlier before we started talking about stuff. It's the same thing as talking about how much business you do and that you're a top producer or, uh, you know, 1% of the real estate's nationwide or number one agent in whatever. You know, it's the same type of thing. You're you're getting instant credibility with people. And when you talk to them and, you, and you're talking to them through the camera, they're getting to know you. And then they feel that, you know, when people want to buy something, anything, one of the questions that they're asking themselves is it good business to do business with this person? Do they have something that I want? You know, so they, they go through these questions for themselves. And a lot of that is answered through doing these videos when you don't even know who you're talking to or who they are. This is really, really interesting. And you said this is one of the, the best promotions that you do. You put the video together, you post it up on YouTube. How do you get people there to look at it? couple of different things. Number one, they're attached to the listings on Zillow and Trulia. I'm, I'm not allowed to do them on the MLS because they don't allow you to do anything that's branded. And obviously, if I'm walking through the house talking about it, it's branded. But this is how people look for a home. They go on to whatever website is their favorite. Okay, say that uh, a lot of people like Redfin's website. They'll go there, they'll look up a house that they want, that they're interested in. And um, it's just an easy use. Zillow is the 800-pound gorilla. I mean, they have the most. So people go and see it on Zillow, they can look at the video right from there. But even if they don't do that, 
their next step is usually, all right, I found something that I'm interested in. Let me find out more information about it. And they Google the property's address. That's what they do when they go on to a print advertising. That's why if you don't put the address when you're on a property, you're doing yourself a disservice because they'll Google the address to find that more information. And that's what they're used to doing. So when they Google it, it's a video. It has a higher ranking. Google owns YouTube, so it's going to get a higher ranking from that. I embed the Google Maps into it, so it's going to get a higher ranking from that. And I've already embedded a lot of successful videos into it, and so I get a higher ranking from that. So these YouTube videos, for the most part, are usually number one, but definitely on the on the first page. And then under that will be Zillow or, or some other, you know, website that has the property on it. But usually I'm number one, but definitely on the first page. So when they look at them and they take a look at the videos, a lot of people are just finding them that way. So they're going directly to YouTube that way. Also, I post them on to social media, on Facebook, Twitter. They're not on Twitter, of course, because you can't do it, but a link to them. So we're, we're putting them into, you know, different things. We'll put them onto any of the social media that we're doing. And then we also do a little bit of things where you follow AdWorks. I don't know if you're familiar with it, where you wind up following people around. So if they go onto the web and they're looking at, you know, one property, then, then we can, if they go to our website, then we can follow them around and do advertising of other properties within the same price range to them through the internet. Yeah, I believe that's uh, Google retargeting or Google remarketing ads. That's another way of doing it. We don't do it through Google. We do it through another company, but same thing. They're retargeting. During the video, how do you get them from watching the video to calling or contacting you? What's the call to action? Well, at the end of the video, I tell them that, you know, watching a video gives you a little bit of information, but if it's something that you're interested in, you got to see it in person. And, you know, real estate needs to be looked at in person. So if you want to take a look at it, give me a call. You're pushing them to make a phone call as opposed to going online or sending you an email. I do. I believe in old-fashioned communication. Maybe it's because I'm old, but that's the way I am. (laughs) I like to talk to people. I even tell my staff, email is not communication. Email is confirmation. It can be to put something in writing that you've already talked to somebody about, but it's not communication because it's only one-sided. I talk about things. If you get a chance to meet somebody person to person, that's the most most important thing. And it doesn't make a difference if you're going to waste your time because it's important to meet people face-to-face. Second is on the telephone. Third is by email and then snail mail. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. 
where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. You know, we've gotten onto this this idea of how you're marketing these luxury homes. You've mentioned print advertising. You've mentioned these YouTube videos that you're putting out there into the market. What other ways do you market a luxury home and, and of course, then use that information to talk to the seller to tell them how you're going to promote their property? Well, that's uh, that's a big question. Um, the advertising, you know, marketing are through social, internet, and print. Now, of course, when we can communicate properties to real estate agents, and we usually do that through email, but I don't like to get too crazy with emails because if you do, people will just put you in their spam or have you diverted to their trash. So. I don't do that unless there's something special that's going on with things. Um, I find that the real estate agents that send out an email every single day or, you know, all the time about properties, they wind up, um, I I don't look at them. I don't know about you, but, um, the, you know, I, I figure if I want to find out about a property, I can look at it on MRIS, you know? So, I've gotten to a point where I want to make sure that I limit the amount of unsolicited marketing I do. You've mentioned to me before that pictures are really important, especially on these high-end homes. And you also mentioned night shots. What do you do with your photographs for your homes? I hire professional photographer to do my photo shoots. That's one photographer. He, they use very high-end cameras. They do three blast shots, one underexposed, one overexposed, and one right, and blend them together. They do things where they do composites for the windows and, and different stuff like that so that they make the house look right colors, bright you know, I, you don't want areas that are dark. So we get professional photographer doing the photography. Then we do the Matterport. If you haven't heard about Matterport, it's a camera. It has nine lenses on it. They put it every six foot in the house. It twirls around and basically makes a 3D image of the home. So on the internet, and, and this gets put right into MLS and stuff, you can zoom in and look at the house like a little dollhouse online. And then the person that does my YouTube video also winds up doing our night shots. So we wait until dusk, turn on the lights on the house, especially a lot of the houses that we're dealing with have uplighting and things like that. And every house looks much sexier when it's a night picture. I mean, they just look better. And sex sells. <laughs> then your final version has a combination of all three of these images. Of course. Usually we use the night shots as our opening shots. And then we'll have 
all the interior shots. I mean, it depends on the price range, of course. Lower price houses don't get as much. I mean, I can spend getting up to, you know, $2,000 in photography on a house. So obviously you can't, you know, waste that on a house that you're only making $8,000 on, you know, something of that sort. How about staging? Do you prepare these homes before you go in to do the photographs? Staging, to me, preparing a house, getting a house ready. Yes, I have a page and a half checklist we deal with with the seller. If the seller has the ability or or not the ability to get the house ready for sale, we have people that we can get to do it for them. And that, you know, they called stagers now. But I'm not a real big one on hiring a stager on every single house. Most of the homes that I'm dealing with are furnished and furnished well and look nice. And when they put them on, we make sure that the landscaper has mulched and, you know, trimmed up the beds and all, all the different types of things. But I'm not about, an in, you know, supporting an, another industry to just sell the, sell the people more things that are not going to make, make a big difference to them. So I'm not a big one on staging, but some houses you have to have that. I think a house that's vacant, I've sold them, you know, over the last 27 years, I've sold thousands of houses that were vacant because a lot of the stuff I do is new. And it, it doesn't really make that much of a difference whether it's staged perfectly or, you know, if you got a model home, it helps. But a lot of people just, just want, a, want a brand new home and they don't want to have anything in it. We've talked a lot about luxury and luxury homes. If there was an agent listening to us and they have been working the middle range of the market and they want to move into the luxury end, uh, how would you recommend they go about it? Well, first of all, it depends. That's a very tough question because when people are at the middle stage, it depends on what their experience is, where they're where their walk of life is, you know, if you're 20 years old and the people that you know and your sphere of influence and your friends and that type of stuff are all buying their first homes, you know, then for you to be in a situation where you're going to go and talk to a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old that's buying the high-end homes you're probably not going to be that successful. And I have people come to me every single day that come to me and want to work the high-end market. And and most of them don't even own a home yet. (laughs) They haven't even gone through a transaction themselves, much less sold houses. So they're not going to be able to, to work in the upper end. Now, that is the rule not there is always exceptions to the rule but for the most part you need to work the place of life where you're at so if you're in a a higher end home yourself 
and you're, you know, you're just getting into the business and you're part of a, a network of people that are at the upper end, sure, you can get right into the luxury end business. You know, you're a country club person and, you know, you, you decided to, uh, you're, or you're coming out of being in a successful business and you want to jump into the luxury end business, I think you can. Now, if you're 30 years old and you've been, um, and, and uh, age doesn't really matter, I guess, for the most part, but if you're at a, a place in your life where you've been selling real estate for a long time and you have lots of experience in it, then what you have to do is step up. So cut off that the bottom 100,000 and raise the top 100,000 and cut off the next year, cut off the bottom 100,000 and raise the next 100,000 or or two or three or four and move yourself into it. If you get a listing at the higher end, work it hard because, you know, this week's hero is the next week zero if he doesn't perform. And I live by that rule. I always am, it's important for me to be successful because I believe that people look at people that are have experience and are successful to sell their properties. So one of the things that I would say to the person that's trying to improve their business is number one, we're in the retail business. So as far as for the time that you're going to spend in being in the real estate business, you need to be at work, up, dressed, ready to work by nine o'clock in the morning. You know, if you're an early bird, you can do other things. I mean, there's people that, that like to get even started earlier than that. But your retail business, you got to be on by nine o'clock in the morning. And then you, you got to be ready for business up until nine o'clock in the evening. That doesn't mean you have to be working that whole time, but you need to be ready to do business any of that time and, and be prepared to. And that means Saturdays and Sundays. Even if you're, you know, you got your kid's soccer game, you have to be accessible. And with today's with cellular phones and, you know, iPads and smartphones, it's very easy to be in constant, you know, on all the time. But you need to be, I mean, when I first started in this business, I worked 80 hours a week at least. And that was when I was building my business. You know, now I'm, I don't work as much, <laughs> but, uh, but I've earned that right. <laughs> so, you know, I've earned the right to, to not work. <laughs> so um, I, I don't have to work anymore. I can quit tomorrow if I wanted to. And then you have to know the other part is that you should have goals that are set that are more than you need. Because this business is kind of like being an athlete or that type of thing where you only have certain time where you're going to make a lot of the money and then you're going to burn out, you know, or whatever, and you're not going to do as well. So make sure that you don't spend it as fast as it's coming in or faster like some people do, that you're putting your money to work for you. And, and you know, and, and re the reality is, is you're in the business. You, I mean, 
I've built a portfolio of real estate over my years in the business, and that's one way that I invest money is you know by doing that. But first, get your business up and, and running, make your expenses and get your you know organize your business to where you know what you make, pay your taxes, you know, do all those good things. So you don't want the IRS coming after you, <laughs> and, um, and go through the process of building a business, and then make sure that you have more and put some of it away, and eventually you'll get to a point where, you know, you don't have to work, And but if you keep putting it away, you feel you do because you're not living on the money that's coming from the investments. Let the investments grow themselves, and you continue to work during your earning years on new business. Well, Casey, one final question on luxury homes. What is the most expensive home you've sold? Could you describe it? I've sold a few of them in the six and a half million dollar range. One that's coming to the top of mind was uh, uh, a big house. People would call it a mansion, you know, big columns, had an indoor swimming pool with a movie theater that dropped down inside of the pool, you know, in the pool room. And um, so you could watch movies while you're swimming and, um, <laughs> you know, had a had a, a disco dance floor kind of a thing in it. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it was decadent. Uh, uh, but, you know, to me, I'm not one of these people that is going for the uh, I've had opportunities to list homes in the tens of millions and they're not my big goal because you know in our market we sell maybe one 10 million dollar home every couple of years and so when you have that high of end of a property there's a lot of expenses that go into it so I would rather I I enjoy being in the the two to five million dollar range. They move much better. Well, Casey, thank you so much for walking us through luxury homes. Another question I have for you in another topic is your past clients and sphere of influence. It's a large percentage of your business. Let's talk about that for just a second here. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? How many people are in there? Forty four eighty two. Wow, that number. <laughs> <laughs> and to the to the decimal there. All right, so forty four eighty two, so almost five thousand people. How would that break out past clients versus sphere of influence? Do you know? Twenty two thirteen as past clients. Twenty two sixty nine as sphere. I'm very particular on my database. I've had my database up to twelve thousand. And if you look at, there's a whole market out there as a cherry tree. And, you know, you have cherries that are green and you have cherries that are red. And if you get too busy working, working that, those green cherries, you might miss the ones that are very ripe and ready to go. So you can only do so much. And by the way, everything works. You know, if you just pick a, a pick something to do it and you do it and try to do it well, everything works. I mean, and I know a lot of people 
go after this part of the business or that part of the business. Me, I, I'm a little different because I've been in for so long, but your biggest business is going to come through the people that you've done business with before or are in your sphere of influence and you know them and know who they are. So I don't put everyone I meet into my database. I just don't even deal with that because that I find is a waste and I don't like to chase deals that are not in my core. But I do have, in in part of my database, I have lawyers in there um, because unfortunately in our business, we know that divorce is a big cause of it's time to sell their home. And um, I have builders in there. And I do have particular neighborhoods in there that that I work those particular areas. So it's not too many. Um, I try to I try to keep that down, but I do have that into my database as well. Plus, people that I've done business with, and I also wind up putting in many instances. I'll ta- I have a, a tagging system where we have a real estate agent that wasn't so sharp on the other side. We'll put their client in as well because uh, and and we've gotten a lot of business from doing a good job for somebody else when they did a poor job and we wound up getting referrals from uh, or business from the other person's client. You mentioned that your database was up to 12,000. You pared it down to 4482. How did you do that process? It must have been difficult. How did you remove people from your database? Not that hard. What happens is earlier on, um, there was a time where I pounded. I had a database manager, and that's all that they dealt with, and we had 12,000 people in there, and we were sending out letters and sending out information to people all the time into their mailboxes because that's what worked at that time. And so as time went on, I went through and crossed off a bunch of different groups of people and just got them out of it. And then over the last, you know, probably 10 years, every year, I take people out. I get, I send out Christmas cards to everybody, and I'll get Christmas cards from a lot of my clients. If we're not communicating at all with each other, then they're kind of tagged as, I might, you know, as a maybe, and if it's still, you know, things still don't work and or I see that they've moved from their property or that type of stuff, we delete them. And so every year in January, we're purging, usually a little bit in November if we have time, and then by January, we're purging our database to keep it just... 5,000 of our closest friends, right? 
how do you stay in front of these folks on an annual basis? Could you give us a quick outline of, say, your annual marketing plan to your past clients in Sphere of Influence? I don't try to have too much contact with them. You know, like I said before, you know, in today's world, people, they want to pick what they get to look at and that type of thing. So about twice a year, we have a contact with them via mail. Usually, I wind up doing something in the spring, and then I do Christmas cards annually. We'll have about two times a year we're doing something by email, but I I try to time them with events or or different types of things. Sometimes it'll be three times a year if there's something special, but I, I don't try to get too crazy with people because our cycle is, you know, seven years. Lot. And so I, I want to touch base with them, but I also don't want them to throw me in junk mail, you know. So I, I try to make things that are meaningful, real. I don't hit them up with these once a month emails that come from a, a, a package that um, winds up, you know, being real, it's really junk mail to everybody, something that they don't have the time to read. Do you have a sub-list, a smaller list of folks that, say, you have a really close relationship with or, or tend to send you the majority of the referrals and that you maybe you do more with? Sure. And we contact them more. We're touching base with them a little bit more, but we wind up talking to those people just because we're talking to them in real business. But what we do for marketing is very low key. There's really no sales pitch in them at all. It's just keeping your name and face in front of them a couple times a year. Yep. That was another question I had is, do you ask directly for referrals? It sounds like you're not making any phone calls to this group and you're not asking directly for referrals. Is that correct? In some of our print stuff that we're sending out, we may have a reference to if they know somebody that they might want to let us know if we can help them. When they first buy a house from us, we'll send them something that's basically thanking them. And then at that point in time, we tell them if if they think we did a good job for them that we appreciate their business and, and um, we appreciate any referrals for them. And if they know somebody else that, that we can do business with them, that would be great. And it's still low-key, but it does say that, you know, if you have a friend or a neighbor that's talking about real estate, you know, and they, we think that we can help them that um, to let them know. I think that by doing really good business with people and having a lot of knowledge and experience and good service, people wind up referring you anyway. I'm also part of, you know, I do business networking and I belong to, you know, some different types of networking organizations and part of our business is referring uh, you know people within the network so I get plenty of, of referrals 
And um, to tell you the truth, I have 65 properties. You know, I can only handle about 75. I'll get down to the bottom number I ever have is somewhere around 35 or 40. So what happens is I'm always in that range where I have business. And if my business was, when things slow down, then I start ramping up marketing that is designed around um, getting some business. And when I have plenty of business, I don't do it because if I got more business, I don't want to have too much business to where I don't have the bandwidth to handle it and I don't do a good job. Let's take a minute and talk about your team. Could you walk through the positions and what folks are responsible for? I'm going to kind of do this a little different. When I first got into the business, my first month, been in business for one month, I hired a secretary at that time, you know, administrative assistant, but, you know, times have changed. So the very first month in the business, I had administrative assistants in when I was a general manager of the dealership, and I immediately realized that there's a need to have someone in the office answering the phones, doing marketing, taking care of the paperwork aspect of the business when I first started. And so, and I've talked to a lot of, I've talked to a lot of brand new agents. I've, ha- I've talked to them. I've given them this, this spiel as far as, you know, how to get things going. And so that's the first thing. I think it's a very, very bad business for real estate agents to the first hire that they hire is a buyer agent. Because if you're successful in this business, a lot of what you're doing is taking care of the people that you're doing business with each day, and you don't want to lose that. So you need to be the person that's in front of the person that wants to buy or sell real estate. And one of the things that I've done through my whole career is try to make sure that 80% of my time is spent selling real estate in one shape or another. So by getting rid of tasks that don't do that, you can get rid of things that are going to stop you from being able to make money. So the very first thing I did is I hired somebody, and their job was taking care of the closing paperwork from contract to close, taking care of um, com- you know, communication with the sellers after we had listed them and, ta- and sending them the paperwork and, and doing all that port. And they did the advertising and marketing at the time, you know, placing ads and that type of thing, because I only need one person for for all those jobs because you're not that busy. As I grew, that became three very quickly. And my core people were and, and have always been from no matter if I was a team or if I was an individual, I always had three people. A closing coordinator that handled the transaction from contract to close. That person, I've had three people in that position in my 27 years. 
One person was with me for over 10. Another person came in as one position and then um, and then took that position and was with me for 13 years. And now the person's been with me for five years. Some of those are overlapped. Then I had a sales coordinator. And so the sales coordinator would do, and, and that position, closing coordinator is pretty much, everybody can figure that out. The sales coordinator basically runs comps for me, has gets the listing folder ready for me, gets all the materials ready for me, winds up talking to our sellers and coordinating things, you know, showings. If if we get notification back from the showing service that they're not letting somebody in, they'll call and make sure that the per- people get in and try to coordinate everything. They're also the person that's working with the other real estate agents. So their job is to sell the other real estate agents on our deals. And if they can't do it, and they think this person is good, then get me on the phone with them. So their job is not selling the house to the consumer, just selling to other real estate agents. And so they're doing that communication, what the the real estate agent thought about the property, so they're communicating with the real estate agent to do that job, so that's part of it. Um, And that way you have one person that's dedicated following up with the people that showed the property. And one thing we know, if someone doesn't see the property, they're not going to buy it. So um, you have a better chance selling it to somebody that saw it than someone that didn't see it. Um, So that's what they're doing. Now, my marketing coordinator is just that. They produce the ads, they're working the Facebook, they're working the Twitter, they're they're working with, you know, close with me in coordinating all of our advertising and marketing efforts. And they're always have, uh, have been a 20-something. That position, I've had one person that was in it for 13 years, and and then the rest of the time I've had them, they're usually here for, and, and I was wondering why she stayed with me so long. She got her master's while she was in the job, but that's kind of a, of, of a position that is a stepping stone to something more. So usually they're with me for three to five years, and that's it. And that position, usually um, I lose them after a while because they get good at doing social media, and they're desirable in the marketplace. My field coordinator has been with me for 25 years. What he does is um, lots of things. Um, He'll check in on properties, make sure that, you know, especially vacant properties, make sure what's going on, make sure that they, you know, he'll coordinate with um, making sure that people can get into the house to do maintenance or repairs. Um, He'll put our signs up. Um, He'll put the signs up for open houses for the weekend. He'll want, um, you know, put our directionals up. He'll fill brochure boxes and um, that type of stuff because one of my pet peeves is going by a house and having an empty brochure box. Um, you know, that's just wrong. And, um, and then, um, and then, uh, I, I actually,
actually have another person that I did not talk to you ahead of time about um, that's a bookkeeper. And um, but she doesn't work just for the one company. She does. Uh, I own a construction company. She so she works for the construction company most. She does book books for the real estate company, and she runs my um, uh, my property management of my own properties. I don't do property management for others. But I do property manage my own properties, and um, and she's kind of running that because it's all about the dollars coming in and repairs. So my field coordinator and my my bookkeeper kind of work for all three at the same time, and and then the team leader is me. <laughs> um, sure. And then and then I have three real estate agents. Um, at, at different times, I've had you know different amount of, of uh, I went I went through the team in the '90s. Then I went back to being just an individual real estate agent, and then now I'm at a point where I'm hiring very carefully, and the type of caliber of people that I want is what I'm getting to ultimately be type of people that I want to take over the business. You know, so I'm I'm hiring people, but I'm very careful and very and and very slow to pick the people because I'm actually giving them business. So I'll take a property, I'll list it, and I'll assign it to somebody else, and they'll get money from it. So you know, a lot of the a lot of the the business I'm giving to them as well. Would you mind disclosing to us how you compensate your sales agents? With buyers, they're getting 50-50, but they already have this network, this infrastructure in to work on their deals. So the transaction, you know, the closing coordinator is working for them, you know, the, all of the, these types of things. All the leads are coming off of my properties for the most part. And then if I assign them a property, you know, one of my listings, I'll give them 25%. If they sell a property that's not assigned, they get um, the 25% and the 50% to a buyer. Are you profitable? Of course. There's no reason, <laughs> <laughs> There's no reason to be in business if you're not profitable. Would you mind disclosing to us what your profit margin is? I have a fixed expense, and it's tough because you know each year can be a little different. But I try to look at a two million dollar GCI, okay, and out of that, about twenty five percent is fixed. You know, is is a fixed overhead. Okay, I'm usually running at about 25 to 30 percent is the variable expense. You know, that's paying out commissions or stuff like that. Because a lot of the transactions, I just do them myself. And so, what I'm, what, where I'm at now, I hope that the variable expenses will rise and and it will over time. 
when I first started in the business, my business was 75% with buyers and 25% with sellers, and now it's the opposite. You know, 75% with the sellers and 25% with buyers, but most of those are with our own listing, so we're getting both ends. So it's, it's I don't work at that much with um, with buyers taking them out, showing property. Always try to keep keep a little bit of that still, just so that you're keeping your pulse on the business, and over time my variable expense will increase and it it should increase to 50%. And so we'll wind up having 75% going out in expenses and, and keeping only 25%. But the um, GCI should also increase as the agents that I have wind up doing more business on their own. And it's already starting to happen this year. I mean, since we've only been doing it for a short time. Yeah, that's awesome. So it sounds like currently you're running about 45 to 50% net profit. And as you transition the business and hand over some of the, the day-to-day, that that'll fall to about 25%, and you're hoping for a, a larger gross at that time. That, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. So, Casey, I have another question for you. What drives you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I'm still doing it. <laughs> what else do I got to do? <laughs> if if you're not going forward, you're going backwards in life, you know. And if you're going to have your oar in the water, you got to paddle. <laughs> so I'm not paddling as hard anymore. When I did 165 transactions, I'll tell you the truth, I just couldn't even understand how to do more. And I went around and I looked around and I went to different real estate agents and visited them all over the country um, that were doing three to 600 transactions. And I found that I didn't want to do business like them because they were kind of, um, pardon my speech here, but they were slam, bam, thank you, ma'am. And, um, and I didn't like, you know, show proper, three properties, have the people pick one. I, I just said, hey, that's not going to work in what I want to do. I mean, I've averaged 100 transactions per year, but what I'm doing is trying to do less transactions with more, with more income. I remember one year I was number one agent with Remax um, worldwide, and I, I did about 100 and six transactions, 100 and, no, I think it was 120 or 130 transactions at the time. And the guy that was number two, he had done 40. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I said, I want to do that. <laughs> I like that. Uh, now, he was on Star Island in Florida, so it was a little different marketplace and a little different price range. But I liked that whole philosophy of making more per transaction. So I started on that path and you can't just do things just because you want to do them. Uh, You know, you have to take what's in front of you and, and work it. So I wound up, um, you know, deciding that I was going to do less transactions. And I figured about a hundred a year is, 
is a good amount um, and, and to do a hundred a million. But when I started this venture, when I changed over to Casey Morgan and Fine Homes, one of the things that I, I wanted to do was work less and develop more. And I knew that to do that, I had to take a step backwards to take a step to take two steps forward. Yeah. So, and that's what I've been doing over the last couple of years. Well, Casey, if you were going to advise a new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? First would be to sit down and figure out their sphere and get them all into a database, every single person that they know. Then I would go around and talk to, preferably in person, and then by telephone, as many of those people that they can and tell them what they're doing and try to develop that into some business because most people, when they start in the business, the the one person that they can count on, if they know somebody and that person respects them and knows that they're a hard worker and have integrity, um, they'll want to use them. So they don't have to build that with meeting a new person. The second thing is that it's probably best to join up with a team or organization that has a structure that they can work because that that team will have um, real estate that they already have listings on. But if they don't, if they're joined in office, they can always, most real estate agents will allow them to work open houses on one of their listings. And my feeling is that open houses give you an opportunity to meet somebody that wants to buy or sell real estate because people usually, not every, not all the time, but the numbers still make sense and you want to put yourself in a place where people are buying and selling real estate. I'd probably also, if I was brand new, I'd join networking groups and I would spend a lot of time putting together your Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all of those types of things to um, set them up so that they're very strong. And then I would work on getting testimonials onto um, Zillow and those types of things because they help also. You have to build a reputation. And unfortunately, some people, I mean, I got a, 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 an email from a 19-year-old a couple days ago, and he wanted to get into development. And I'm sitting there going, oh, yeah, sure you do. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, a lot of the younger people today believe that you can just step into a high position and uh, or step into you know multi-million dollar deals. Uh, you know, when I worked at the, when I first started, I went. Um, but you don't know. You don't necessarily know the area, but um, I'm in Fairfax County, one of the wealthiest counties in the United States just 
south of us is Prince William County. And at the time, there was houses down there that were $100,000. I sold a whole bunch of them, <laughs> you know, because when you're dealing with people that are first-time home buyers, they don't know as much as you about the real estate business. So you got to work with people and you got to get transactions under your belt so that you get experience and you know what you're doing and you're comfortable with the the transaction and your customer and you know what to expect and you give that customer service and you work that all the way through learn the market. I remember when I first started I had maps of of the area and I marked every single house that came on the market, color-coordinated it of what the price ranges were because I was learning the area. And I would put together little um, stars for houses that were way out of, you know, that were way below the market comparatively to what else was in there. And it was my way of learning the, the market. And so when you first start, you have to do business because if you don't do business, you don't make money. You don't make money, you don't stay in the business. So you've got to do that. At the same time, you've got to learn the market. I can drive anywhere in northern Virginia, and I don't need a GPS. Matter of fact, I am a GPS in my brain. And friends call me, say, I'm here at these two crossroads. How do I get to there all the time? And so, um, so you've got to learn different things. One thing that I was told very early on in this business was drive a different way home from work every day. Don't drive the same route. That way you got to see different areas and neighborhoods and, and you know, you see if the grass is three foot tall, there might be somebody that wants to move, you know or a house that looks like it's vacant or abandoned, they might want to sell. So, you know, you do that, and each thing you do is helpful to you. So so you do the research. I mean, I once was working for a guy that wanted to rent a school. So he was looking for a property, a residential property that he could rent to do a little school in. So I started calling on all these properties. Well, first of all, on one wrong phone call, I made a phone call and I got a wrong number, but it turned out to be a builder that had some inventory and I wound up listing it and selling it. (laughs) I wound up calling on another piece of property and found out that they didn't want to rent it to these people, but they were willing, it was subdivided into four lots and they did want to sell it. So I wound up selling it to a builder. Then I wound up working with that builder on the new houses and sold four new houses there. I mean, the reality is, is you don't know how you're going to get business. Then I did a great job for him. I wound up listing some townhouses that he had in another area and some other property with him. I wound up doing $18 million worth of business from that $2,000 rental. (laughs) So (laughs) you take business where you get it. And I always say you do business because you're in the business a lot of times. And um, if you're doing things that are tasks that are in the business, 
a lot of times they don't pay off on that particular task, but they'll pay off in other things. Well, Casey, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Of course that they're invaluable to new agents that are starting in the business to get to hear older, (laughs) hopefully wiser, um, real estate agents like myself that have already been through the business and to understand how they might fit in. I mean, the world is changing in real estate and it's going to change so much in the next five years. So to figure out how you can fit in your business. And I think there's a lot of really super bright young people and they have a completely different way of doing business. Myself, you know, I'm an old dog and, you know, it's hard to learn a new trick, although I've kept up with the times very well. But some of the things about the way the business is going, I don't really like. But I think that it's going to change a lot. And if you're able to adapt and come out, there's definitely a lot of money to be made in this business still. That's why I've chosen to go the way that I'm going, because I think there's always a level of service that people are willing to pay for. But also I see where the buyer agent's more transaction-based and a lot of rebate-based, and so they're not selling the service. They're selling the rebate, and I I think that a lot of that's going to backfire a little bit on business and um, maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. I don't know, you know, where things are. But I think that it's good for people to learn what other people are doing, decide whether or not they think that um, other agents are uh, have good ideas or they're all wet and they can figure out how to do it themselves a different way. Well, Casey, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? Like I said a couple of times through this interview, everything can work. And the the really cool thing about this business is that there's representing buyers, there's representing sellers, there's ways of doing the business through technology, there's ways of doing it through personal service. There, I mean, there's so many different ways to look at this business and they all work. You can go after for sale by owners, you can go after expired, you can do all these different things. As long as you decide that you're going to do the business, you're going to be serious about it and take an action plan and work that plan and keep to it. I think you can be successful in any way that you decide to do the business. Well, Casey, you showed us how you took action on your plans and achieved great success. Your strategy to work the luxury market so you could give your high-level personal attention to fewer clients has paid off in a bigger GCI and higher average commission per transaction. Your focus on income over units has made the decision clear. Your execution of the plan was exemplary. As you say, anything works as long as you work it. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who quadrupled her production after hiring a coach. 
find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.